Well, good morning, everyone. The snow bubble worked again over Murfreesboro, didn't it? That's why we're able to worship here. It's amazing. I, when I first moved here, I thought that was a fairy tale, but I think it's true. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. 26 through 38. As we uh, dive into this passage, uh, let me start by going back to something I found this week. In 1999, there were two New York Times reporters who wrote articles. In a span of one week, they wrote articles, very different articles or opposing views on the two, what I think, most important people in the Bible, Jesus and David. The first one wrote an article about the then, at that time, 1999, this new discovery, this, this discovery that they had found out, they found this tablet or foundation from the 9th century B.C., an ancient foundation that had made an overt reference to the house of David. And, and in his article, he therefore declared and rebuffed uh, all of those skeptics who thought that David was just a myst uh, mystical figure and not a true historical figure in time and place. In that same week, uh, another New York Times reporter uh, raised the question about, uh, serious questions in his article about whether Jesus of Nazareth ever really existed or not. And when I, when I read this, I thought the world in which we live either despises the biblical narrative or he thinks of them in some ways as a fairy tale, much like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Just this week, just this week, in the news, major news media, it was reported that a principal, high school principal in Nebraska, banned candy canes from the high school because they were in the shape of a J, which obviously stood for Jesus. Now, thank goodness, he, I think he's going to get forward <laughs> for doing that. Southern word for fired or at least suspended. Crazy, though. And then I read with our college professor uh, in the University of Minnesota, psych psychology professor, wrote this about the virgin birth. She tweeted, the virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impenetrating a human teen. There's no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Therefore, happy holidays. We come to our text this morning in Luke 1. It is heavy with, it is full of those three people, Jesus and David and this teenage girl, Mary. So my question, I thought to us, would be this. If an ancient foundation was found in Bethlehem saying, here was born Christ. Would that help us? Would that make us? Would that assure that you and I would believe in such a way that it would really affect us? It would affect every square inch of our hearts and minds and lives? Or would, like we can tend to do this time of year around the Christmas story, in the Western world, where we tend to turn the story of Christ's birth into a pretty painted scene of an angel and a young maiden suitable for an ornament on our Christmas trees. In our text last week that Monty taught, this week and the next two weeks, 
Luke's account of the incarnation is anything but mystical. It is anything but pretty painted scene. It is anything but an ornament that you would hang on the tree. It is certainly more than fair to say that the incarnation to Luke is like a dagger that is thrown through the fabric of this world. And it shatters it to allow us to see another world. Luke, as you may or may not know, is a doctor. He researches and writes with precision and clarity about Jesus. Matter of fact, last week, Monty mentioned this in verses 3 and 4. He says his goal in writing this book is to write an orderly account for you that you may have the certainty concerning Jesus Christ. So this morning in our passage, Luke writes of the certain entrance upon God and the world to reclaim lost humanity. He writes, <coughs> excuse me, of this series that we have named it, uh, named this series Incursion, which means a sudden invasion, a sudden attack of God upon this world. And over the chapters, maybe these first two chapters of the Incarnation, uh, you could write in over Luke 1 and 2 the words danger, God is at work. And he's at work. What is he doing? He is making the impossible possible. And that's what he says to us today in verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. So the Christmas story, <clears throat> we need this to be drilled in us, is not something that we would see on a Hallmark TV special, but is the one that John Piper describes at the top of your notes when he says, <clears throat> Christmas is about the creator of the universe who is not himself part of the universe, moving himself and the person of his son into the universe he made. And what makes this fact more remarkable is that this created universe is in rebellion against its maker, and yet he came into the universe that he made in order to save those who are in active rebellion against him. So this morning, let's read verses 26 through 30 as we take a look at Mary's gracious surprise. Mary's gracious surprise <clears throat> In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So let's take a minute to sort of set this scene up. In some way, uh, Luke, as he writes this narrative, he's setting the scene. And there's a lot of details here that really matter as Mary gets his gracious surprise. First thing we read, he says, In the sixth month. And so I think next question is, 
Sixth month of what? Well, in verse 124, a few verses that Monty spoke of last week, he is referring to Elizabeth, this cousin of Mary. She is now, he is saying, in her sixth month of pregnancy. She was barren, she was old in age, and the Holy Spirit came upon her, and her and Zacharias got together in their old age and made a baby. She is now six months pregnant. So Luke here, in that telling us this time, Luke is emphasizing that this moment in time, this month, is the most important thing going on in the world, that it is the most important reality that is happening in the world. It is more important than Luke chapter 2 tells us about Caesar Augustus. It's more important than the millions of people in the Roman Empire and what they were up to. It's more important than King Herod, who was the overseer of the Jews. Luke is telling us, in the sixth month, what's happening right now is more important than all of that. Matter of fact, Caesar and Rome and Herod look puny in comparison because what is happening here is at this point in time going to change the course of history for all humans through these two obscure women. Now, don't miss the drama here because there is certainly some drama. This angel Gabriel has shown up twice within the first 26 verses of Luke. And you may or may not know that Gabriel only shows up four times in the whole Bible and two of them were right here. So you're talking about a rare, unique moment that Gabriel shows up, a moment of significant importance. And from the Bible, we know this. When angels show up, they just don't show up to hang out, to have some wings, to chit-chat about sports. No, no, no. When angels show up in the Bible, it is not only in rare moments, but they are personal manifestations of God's very presence and his activity in the world. And Gabriel's presence here, as I said earlier, means that God is at work, that God has invaded this earthly ball. And we know from angels this, like, like us as humans, we can have a lot of things that are important to us. But as angels, there is one thing that is important to them. There is one purpose they have, and that is to do the bidding of God when he says, what he says, where he says, to who he says. And so God says, boom, they show up, and something's important is happening. And then, and, then, and then Luke mentions this city. He says he is sent, Gabriel is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, this little town of Nazareth is so small that he had to actually include the city of Galilee so people would know where it's at. Only about 200 Jewish farmers lived in this town. Uh, it was more known for its immorality because Rome has sent a bunch of Roman soldiers to live there, and along with them, they brought several houses of prostitution. So when you put soldiers along with prostitutes, you're going to get immorality. It is is why Nathaniel, uh, when he heard in John chapter 1 that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he said this, remember, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
That's why he said it. So notice this. When the incursion takes place, when the invasion of God takes place upon this world, it does not enter the capital city of Jerusalem. It enters this little unknown, in some ways unseen town that has no reputation for good. God is entering in and will bring good out of the bad. Now, for us, it might be in our modern day, we might not say God would not uh, invade Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, but he would pick this out-of-the-way place like Hornbeak, Tennessee, population 412. Anybody know where Hornbeak is? I mean, me either. I Googled it. It's one of the smallest towns in Tennessee. Dr. Darrell Bach puts it this way. He says, the great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation in a serene, unadorned, humble package of simplicity. So we got the sixth month. We got angels showing up. We got this little unknown town, not known for its good, but it's bad. In verse 27, Luke lays out two facts of this passage. He says, Mary is a teenage virgin. She's probably 15 or 16 years old, and she is betrothed to Joseph. Now, the Jewish tradition is a little different from ours. Marriage was this three-part process. The first part was that the parents would get together, and one set of parents would say, I like your son, and the other set of parents would say, I like your daughter, and they would say, and I, we like each other. How about how about we get our kids together and let them marry? Now, that's different than we do it. Thank goodness I didn't marry the women my mama was trying to set me up with, right? So the second one is a betrothal stage. And it lasted about a year where marriage was, was different than our engagement in that marriage was legally binding. Uh, you did not come together to be sexually intimate. You still lived apart with your mom and dad in your own homes, uh, but there was a legally binding commitment to one another. And during this time, um, there was there was just this time to get to know each other, also get sort of the, the dowry for the woman in place. And then you had this third stage, which was the wedding itself. Now, during the second, second stage, during this, this Jewish engagement stage, if the woman became pregnant, the man could take her, have her stoned, put her in the street, put her as an outcast, and could divorce her to vindicate his own honor. So Luke tells us those things. And so we think of this as, as, as God choosing a teenage girl to invade our world. And then it tells us in the text that, that Joseph was of the house of David. That's one of two times in these few verses that he mentions the house of David, so it must be important. This is the great King David that we know of and much of the Old Testament spoke about. So here's what Luke does. Luke wants us to make a connection between this child being born and David the king. So what he does, he goes all the way back to David. And he goes back to a promise that God made to David at the apex of the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what that promise says. 
I will raise up your offspring after you and your house, speaking to David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I'm not sure that David understood what God was saying and promising to him, but he was saying through the lineage, through your lineage, David, your throne will last forever. So what else we know here is this, this promise goes back further to David's ancestors, to Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it goes back to Judah's ancestors and even father, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And then it even goes farther back to the very foundation of the world in Genesis 3.15, when in God's sovereign mind, he knew that we would need a savior. And what Genesis 3.15 says, where God tells the serpent, it would be the seed of a woman. The seed of a woman, this woman, this teenager, this Mary, that would eventually crush him for what he did and for his deception in the garden and his influence in the world. Folks, this here is the long-anticipated promise being fulfilled in the Messiah. 3,900 years of waiting, and we have got here. That's why there's drama here. Now, the first service, I said 39 years, and people were looking at me like, Wow, that wasn't very long. So, long time of waiting. So in verse 28, Gabriel speaks to Mary very specifically, and he says, greetings, it says in our Bible, but the word is really just the word, hello. And, and I thought, that one hello not only changed her day, but it changed the rest of her life, right? And he says to her, literally, you have been graced by God. You found favor with God. It reads, you have been graced by God. She is the receiver of divine grace, not the giver of divine grace. Now, why is this important? It's, one reason it is because the Catholics, what they do is they take Jesus and they take Mary and they put them together and they say that Jesus and Mary together are the ones who who give divine grace. But it's not true. Matter of fact, this is the first time in the New Testament where the word for grace, charis, is used. And it's used with Mary. It's salvation language. She is given grace and the Lord is with you. Isn't that what happens when we come to Christ? We are giving grace and the Lord through His Spirit comes to indwell us. So the Catholics make way too much of Mary. They put her on the same par as a dispenser of grace that Jesus is. But I think as Protestants, we maybe don't make enough of her. We've gone the other way. Such an important figure. Verses 29 and 30, Mary was in a state of, if you can imagine, like what? <laughs> what in the world is going on? And it wasn't so much what uh, that the angel or an angel had spoken to her, but it was more about what he had actually said to her. And this is what I love about this in Luke. He actually comes back and says, Mary, do not be afraid. I understand you're in shock. And then he repeats to her this phrase again, you have found favor with God. You have been graced by the living God of Israel. 
You have been graced by the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I am, he is with you. You have found favor with God. God has graced you, Mary. He has chosen you to be a vessel for his purposes and his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, I'll speak for me, but I've had enough conversations with people over the years to know that when we come to Christ and God finds favor with us and graces us in Christ and dwells us, is with us through his spirit, we need reminding of that a million times in our Christian life. Do we not? Yeah. That status doesn't change. And I love here just in a few minutes, in a few verses, that's what that's what the angel Gabriel does to Mary, to keep drilling home the gospel, the gospel for Christians. God has graced you, he is with you, and he wants to use you. That is, that is in some ways a great message of the Christian life, true for every Christ follower. So we have Mary's gracious surprise. <clears throat> and then the angel begins to speak of Mary's very unique son. Look at verse 31 through 33. And behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, there will be no end. So he said, Mary, you're going to be this human vehicle which God will bring the Messiah into the world. And your son is unique among all men and women who've ever been born into this world. And, and in those few verses, he tells us three things about this unique son of Mary. He says, you'll conceive and you'll bear a son. His name will be Jesus. And, and this name, Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. And so even his name represents why he came and what he does. And the second thing he says about this unique son is he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now, Gabriel's birth announcement to Mary is similar to the birth announcement that he gave to Zacharias in verse one 15 or chapter 1 verse 15 in that he says both to Elizabeth and Zacharias and to Mary your sons will be great but he adds something here but this son is going to be super duper great because your son will be called son of the most high no doubt John the Baptist remember his name forever the forerunner of Christ is great but he says, your son Mary is really great because he's the son of God. Jesus is superior to John the Baptist because he is divine. And this signals our next point, that a king is about to be born. The third thing that Gabriel says to Mary about her unique son is he is the king and his kingdom will last forever. Now, this is the second time that we've mentioned or Gabriel has mentioned this Davidic kingdom, this, this, um, this truth about who David is and how he's connected to Jesus through his lineage. Now, we know he's a king because he says, uh, says, you're going to be given a throne. Only thrones 
our kings are given thrones, and this is the one promise from David. It says, he will reign, only kings reign, and he will rule forever. And he says, this king will rule with a universal and eternal authority. There will be no coups to his kingdom. There will be no re-elections to replace him. Nothing will stop this reign. Not rejection by the Jews, not a crucifixion. Nothing will stop God's plan for his Davidic kingdom that he promised in 2 Samuel 7. And I don't know about you, but if you struggle to believe, that right there is enough to sink your teeth into. We know that this reign became a visible reign. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, once the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, Peter stands up and gives a sermon that 3,000 people came to Christ. And here's what he says about this kingdom, this king that will last forever. He says, Acts chapter 2, 29 through 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, meaning today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, there's that word again, Luke used it earlier, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Davidic kingdom mentioned twice in our text is mentioned over and over because the angel Gabriel is declaring the Old Testament promises are now being fulfilled, Mary, in your unique son. Now, I'm sure that you can empathize with this young teenage girl named Mary as she sort of struggles to take all this in. And as she does, the text tells us in verse 34, and I made a mistake on the outline. It's just one verse, verse 34. She asked a question. Let me read it with you. And Mary said to the angel, verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary's on this inquisitive search. Mary's first statement, notice, is not, my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. The Messiah is coming, and I am going to be the mother of the Messiah. I'm sure she was excited. I'm sure that she's still getting a hold of herself. But this uniqueness of her son is not what she's asking this question about. Mary asks a question. It says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, we need to understand that this question is not a question of unbelief 
like Zacharias asked last week. Zacharias didn't believe. And because of that, Gabriel muted him, as Joel said in our conversation after church. That dude got muted, you know. And then I said, Jenna, your mom would probably wish I'd get muted sometimes. And she nodded her head, yes. Yeah, so. But this is a question, not of unbelief. This is a question of curiosity. This is a question that comes from Mary understanding basic human biology. Literally, Mary is saying, how can this be since I have never known a man? The word known is sexual relations. How can this be? How can I have a child? I, I get it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, but, but I am betrothed to Joseph. We still live in our separate homes. We've never been together sexually. I've never been with a man or known a man in that way. So how is it that I can birth a child? Less alone, the Son of God. It reminded me about 25 years ago. I was in conversation with a man who was brilliant, master's degree in engineering. He had read the scriptures most of his whole life, and later on I found out the problem was he had read a lot of liberal commentaries along with those scriptures. And in our conversation one day, he argued pretty forcefully that Mary was not a virgin, meaning Mary was not a a gal who had never had sex, that that word virgin actually means young maiden, which it can in some contexts, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, so he argued that Mary wasn't a virgin. He actually, the implication was that Mary and Joseph got married after this. They had sex. She became pregnant. And then God, through his Holy Spirit, blessed that human child to make him the Messiah. And as he argued with me, I didn't know what to say. I'm young in my faith. And so I was like, wow, never heard anything like that. So I began to go back and study as much as I could without not a lot of tools. And as I read, started to read, remember very clearly Luke and Matthew's account of this virgin birth. What I thought to myself was, sometimes he and us are just too smart for our britches. We fool our own selves by our smartness. A lot of times, we just need to read the Bible. Verse 34, a fifth grader could come to the conclusion that in verse 34, Mary is saying, I don't understand how I can have a baby since I've never been with a man. He thought the virgin birth was not important. I think it's very important. Most biblical conservative scholars do. Let me give you three quick reasons why God required his son to be born a virgin. The virgin birth is a sign that signifies the uniqueness of Jesus. Not only did Jesus do signs to prove that he, who he was, but make no mistake, Luke here with certainty is saying Jesus Christ is the sign. He is confirming 
what Isaiah said in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. <clears throat> Secondly, Jesus enters this world as a God-man. 100% God, 100% man. So if Joseph had been the DNA father, Jesus could not have been our Savior. We know that flesh begets flesh. We know inherently that humans cannot save humans. It is only God that can save humans. And so he does so and able to do so through this virgin birth. And thirdly, because of the virgin birth, Jesus does not have Adam's inherent sinfulness and transgression passed down to him like everyone else, like everyone else who's ever been born. God had to bypass Adam's sinful lineage because Mary was not sinless. Mary, too, was sinful. Mary will later actually recognize this child to be her Savior. And we know that people, and we know only sinners actually need Saviors. So I think the virgin birth is very important. So you have this unique son, gracious surprise, unique son, and Mary's inquisitive search. And then lastly, Mary's obedient surrender. Look at verses 35 through 38. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will it be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Gabriel departs as quickly as he comes. And in this last part, I love verse 35. It's parallel statements. It says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Is the phrase used, the same one used in Acts 1.8, when it talks the Spirit of God coming upon us to to his people to give them power to be witnesses through the whole world. And then he uses this parallel phrase, the second one, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It is the same wording as the powerful presence of God that is overshadowing the earth. Remember in Genesis 1, that the presence of God is overshadowing the whole earth. And in that God spoke with his creative power and he said, let there be light. And the scriptures tell us there was light. And here it's that same presence of God that is overshadowing this son. And he says, let there be a child. And this child is a, that becomes forth in this womb of a teenage virgin. virgin. And it's not light that we see by, but it's light that we live by said he will be called holy. One thing we know for sure, as pretty as our babies were, as hairy as they were, as chubby as they were, as long as they were, as bald as they were, we can call babies a lot of things, but none of us could ever call any of our babies holy. This child is holy because he is uncontaminated by sin. In verse 36, 
I love the encouragement here. Gabriel saying, Mary, I know this is hard to take in. I know this is hard to believe, but I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you by telling you about your cousin Elizabeth. Look, go see her. In the next few verses, she will. She'll find out what I've done in her, this barren woman who is old in age. I have produced a child. As Zacharias and Elizabeth got together when no one thought it could happen. That's one miracle, and I'm doing another one with you. So here's confirmation that God really is at work in Elizabeth, in you. Your family legacy will go on and on and on. So there's great encouragement to help her believe. And then in verse 37, Gabriel reminds Mary who God is. Mary, you can believe this because I am the God or represent the God of the impossible. And then lastly, I love Mary's obedient surrender. Her words back to the angel. After all that has happened, she says, I am a bondservant. I am a doulos. I am a slave of the Lord. I am at your disposal. Do with me as you please. Surrender and humility before the living God. And don't miss this. Let's not miss what that kind of surrender potentially is going to cost her. She didn't know the rest of the story yet. There is always when we surrender in humility to the Lord and say, I am yours, do with me as you please. There's always a cost involved. And Mary knew that. She didn't know the rest of the story, but she knew there were very serious potential problems coming up with Joseph. For her to go to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, you know, we're betrothed to each other. We've never had sex with one another, but I just want to let you know, I found out today from an angel that I'm pregnant. Okay. See how that works for you guys. Go and talk to your wife, right? There's potential there that Joseph could leave her, abandon her, drag her before the city, have her stoned, divorce her, and she would be an outcast in society. But she's all in. She's not only, one writer said, the first disciple. She's the ideal disciple. She's the first and the ideal. Here's the model for us, day by day, to get up and say, Lord, here I am. Do with me as you please. Surrender in humility. The great pastor and chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He's so great, I forgot his name. <laughs> What's his name, Phil? Now he's an old guy. Peter Marshall. Thank you very much. Google him. Phil just looked at me. He's winking his eye and... I knew it was sign language for Peter Marshall. <laughs> he says this. He says, we, not, we may not observe Christmas. May we not observe Christmas, but rather keep it. Mary is saying, there's a difference between observing Christmas and keeping it. Keeping it is surrendering to Christ in new and fresh ways. When the incursion came, when the sudden invasion of God came through the incarnation, he's really saying this. 
I'm coming for you <laughs> in spite of you. I'm coming. And it was love that drove him to do that. So take a minute and ask yourself this morning, just as we go through this Christmas season, that God would give you very tangible, new and fresh ways so that you can be certain about this Christ and that certainty would drive you to surrender to him.